You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students with God-honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well-balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This is Asbury. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley, and thank you for coming to Asbury University. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. There's a question I love to ask people, and I would really love to hear your response to this. So the author and the editor, Margaret Feinberg, has made the point that every pastor really only has three or four sermons in them. And they just keep rotating through these three or four themes, finding new ways to talk about them. So you are a pastor, you're an academician, you're a scholar, you're a writer. I think her comment uh, relates to you. So I just wanted to ask, are there three or four themes in your work that you find yourself returning to again and again? Well, between my last two like major books, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, and this, the new one that's coming out soon, Half Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South, there is one word that is shared between both those titles, and it's the word hope. And I think one theme that comes across a lot in my writing is given the complexities of what's happened in America and kind of the brokenness we see in society, it's easy to see evil and just give up and say the world will always be the way it's always been. And I find myself trying to be both honest about the problems in the world and articulate a particularly distinctive Christian version of hope. The final book, In Lord of the Rings, where they made it back to the Shire and Frodo has the wound from his battle and like every year around the anniversary of the battle, the wound kind of um, returned. And it's like they won, but they're still marked by the pain of that victory. Like he never is fully healed. And I feel like for me, part of what I do as a writer is exploring both the wounds that accrue to us as we move through this life as Christians, the ways in which life damages us, but the fact that that damages in the end. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we ignore the damage or we allow the damage to consume us entire. So a lot of my writing is like, yes, the world is messed up. Yes, a lot of the times Christians have failed, but there's still something about what God is up to in the world and through his church that is worthy of our allegiance. So it's kind of a nevertheless God is good. It's a lot of my writing. Yes, that reminds me of Eric Loxma, the Hollywood producer, and he's a person of faith, and he's talked about using Holy Week language Friday messages that are like Good Friday, dark, yeah. despairing, hopeless, painful, gritty, and then the Sunday stories yes. that hopeful, optimistic, joy-filled. And he said, sometimes stories err on one side or the other. Yeah. You can go straight to the Sunday and miss some of the grittiness, yeah. and then you can get lost in the hopelessness of Friday. He said, I'm a Saturday Storyteller. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I think that that's part of it. I think that the other one is this idea that a credible witness comes from telling the truth. And I'm very 
intent on telling the truth without being cruel. I think that sometimes when we're wounded by society, some of our own ministry or resistance can be out of that wounding. And so we're not just telling the truth, we're getting revenge towards the people or the groups that hurt us. And so it's not just resisting injustice, it's like getting a little bit of payback. And so I try to tell as much truth as I can with the openness that allows for people of goodwill to hear it. That's really hard because you have to be honest. You can't lie about what is sometimes happening in the world. And sometimes the very articulation of the truth about what is happening in the world upsets people because they don't want to deal with the real pain and the real brokenness of the world. But also to try to open up the possibility of the art of persuasion and to be able to hopefully persuade people. And so I guess you want to say truth-telling with the hopes of persuasion and hope in the midst of melancholy. I don't write only Sundays. There's always a little Good Friday. There's this idea that, I don't know if it's actually true, that in Eastern Orthodox iconography, that in most of the icons of the nativity, the icons of the baby Jesus, there's always a cross somewhere in the picture. So it's that even on the celebration of Christmas, in the imagery, there's a little bit of a cross in the back. And so I feel like Christianity is always kind of hope with a little bit of melancholy because you can never completely separate the crucifixion from the Christian story. So I think that informs my writing yes. as well. Yes. You mentioned your book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. It's an award-winning book. The title reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. A lawyer comes forward to test Jesus it says, asking what he has to do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus says what's written in the law, and how do you read it? And later, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. In other words, it's not enough to read Scripture. Jesus was not simply inquiring whether the lawyer read the Scripture. He was also interested in his interpretation, his rightful interpretation of what he read, and he remarked that he hadn't interpreted the Scripture correctly. So reading's one thing, but we have to responsibly interpret. So we bring a variety of analytic skills to responsible Scripture reading, but we also bring a variety of experiences. And I was wondering if you could just talk about what role does racial experience play in a biblical hermeneutic? Yeah, I think that there can be a misunderstanding where kind of like black skin or whatever ethnicity you have is magical, such that black skin produces readings of the Bible. What I'm actually talking about is how our experiences are shaped by our race. Even if race isn't real, even if race is a social construct, it's a social construct with a real phenomenon. So if someone mistreats me, I can't say, well, race isn't real, therefore I didn't experience racism. And so the experiences that we have in our lives are always what we bring to the biblical text. You read the Bible one way when you're a, a single person, trying to make sense of how the Bible speaks to my singleness. When you get married, you're all of a sudden saying, how does the Scripture speak about how I function as a husband or a wife? Or later, when you become a parent, how does the Scripture speak to me as a parent? And each time we encounter new experiences, it raises questions. And we bring those questions to the text. But we don't just make the text what we say. The text then says, okay, now this, I think the Bible is the Word of God. It speaks to all situations. Now that you're in this stage of life, Here's how these texts are going to come alive and shape how you live. So now I'm saying, well, if the Bible speaks to other experiences in life, when I'm trying to figure out how do I make sense of living in a racialized world, the Bible helps me understand those questions. It helps me make sense of how do I treat my neighbor? How do I engage in issues of justice? But there are certain questions raised by being an African-American 
in the United States that I bring to the Bible reading process. I talk a lot about motivated attention. And motivated attention doesn't produce readings. It helps you to notice readings that you might not notice. Maybe I'll give one last example. I remember when I was growing up and I was first starting off as a young preacher and I grew up in an impoverished background. And I would talk about all of the passages in the Bible that speaks about the rich. The Bible speaks about materialism. And I would kind of rail against materialism from the perspective of poverty. And then one day I looked up and I was now someone who was no longer poor. It's like, oh, no, I'm not the person, like, pointing the finger. The finger is now at me. And then I had to ask a totally different set of questions. Not what does the Bible say about how I was treated as a poor person. It's now what does the Bible have to say about how I treat people. And now I began to look at things in a totally different way. And I noticed something. And this isn't—anybody could have noticed it, but I saw it. And I was reading—I think I was reading it somewhere— and I'm reading about these house churches in the New Testament. And I noticed something that I didn't notice when I was poor. I'm not rich now, but I'm not poor. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that all of the house churches in the New Testament were in the homes of the wealthy. Yes, the church is socioeconomically diverse, but the house churches met in places that had enough room to fit 20 or 30 Christians. I was like, oh, now that shows you that what the wealthy can do is use their resources for the kingdom of God. And I got an example that apparently everybody didn't give away all of their money because they couldn't have met in the house churches that they spoke about in the New Testament. And that began to challenge me to look in the Bible for ways in which I can use the resources that God has given me to advance the kingdom of God. And now my social location has changed, right? Same Bible, right? And both applications, I think, are faithful. The Bible speaks about how we treat the poor, and the Bible speaks about how we engage in resources, but that shifted as my life experience shifted. And all I'm saying is one of the lenses that shape our field of interpretation are our ethnic identities. And sometimes that's good or bad, right? Our identities can help or hinder our readings of the Bible. Sometimes when we're wealthy, we can actually not see the passages in the Bible that challenge us. And so it's not that all social location helps. It's that all social location influences us. And what we actually need is a bunch of people reading the Bible from different perspectives so that we can make up for each other's weaknesses yes. and discern the mind of Christ. I love that because when you use the word motivated, people immediately think of like motivated reasoning, confirmation yes. bias. But what you're describing is a kind of diverse reading that would actually minimize bias yes. and not reinforce it. Yes, by counseling each other. Out. And so one of the things that says what brings unity to our diversity? Like, yes. if we are coming from different perspectives, how do you litigate those things? In a culture that doesn't believe the Bible is the Word of God, you must have some other standard to litigate. Maybe it's like different groups have a special place, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying we're all looking towards the same text, and we're all ordering our lives on the basis of these texts. And we're saying, here's an insight that I have come to based upon both the collection of my hermeneutical skills and my biases and my strengths and weaknesses, what do you think? You might say, Esau, actually, you got that wrong. It happens to us all of the time. Like anyone who's ever had a missionary come from overseas, they, looking at us from outside of America, say, well, hold on. Here's three things you can't see as Americans. And when a missionary comes, you're completely right. I remember someone spoke about going to a grocery store. If you've never been to a grocery store and you see all of the opulence that we have as far as food and things, that might not be that same kind of diversity. You can have 15 different types of apple, which seems to us like completely normal. <laughs> but someone who doesn't have a place where you can get all fruits, all seasons will say, no, this is American wealth. And so one of the things I'm talking about is 
our locations can blind us. I'll give you, sorry, I'm, I'm an analogy person. But here's the thing, and maybe this is the reason why we need wisdom. Sometimes when you're in a, you know, you think about people, young people in their relationships, and they're in love. But sometimes love can crowd out the truth. <laughs> and sometimes you need someone who's not with the, <laughs> the googly eyes to say, you know what? I know that you're really passionate about this person, but here's some issues that you might need to work on on yourself. Yes. Or here's something in this relationship, this dynamic that you can't see that those of us who are outside of it can help you. Yes. And one of the things that the Christian community then is we believe that collective wisdom leads to a more faithfulness, not less. And what I'm saying is we need the collective wisdom across culture to help us follow God more faithfully. Uh, it's well said. The philosopher Alastair McIntyre, one of his key philosophical points is we're born into a story where these narratival beings so to understand ourselves, we can't abstract from people, from places, from experiences of our embedded history to realize our self-understanding. Rather, that very understanding is itself shaped by the story we find ourselves in. I suspect you agree with that, but how does that narrative understanding of ourself, one philosopher calls it the situated self, relate to your recent book, How Far to the Promised Land? Yeah. One of the things that I'm really bad at is sticking with genres. <laughs> <laughs> so I've written a book on hermeneutics. I've written a book, just an extended interpretation of Galatians in my dissertation. I've written a fiction book, children's fiction book. And one of the things that each one of them has shown me is the different ways to make an argument. Sometimes you apply a biblical text and you say, the Bible says this. Sometimes you teach people how to read the Bible so they might come to truer understandings. But sometimes our stories, precisely because they're human stories, touch on universal truths. That's the reason why we can say that the Old Testament is God's particular story of what he's up to in the nation of Israel. And through that particular story, in a particular place, he's communicating to us universal truths. Now, my story isn't the Old Testament, so it's not inspired in that way. But what I wanted to show was the ways in which the particular experiences that I and my family through generations, because it spans not just my time period of like the late 90s, early 2000s, but my parents who grew up in the 70s, and then my grandparents who grew up in like the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and even my great-grandparents who were there during the 1900s and Jim Crow. And so by telling those stories, it tells something about what's going on in America but also what does it mean to be human? And one of the things that I tried to do in that story, and this is one of the things that hopefully the people who listen to it will like it, is there's different kinds of books that one can write. You can write a book about race or racism, and so it's kind of a racial consciousness book to explain how race functions in America. And there's books that are popular about that. And there's books about poverty, you know, the books about growing up poor and the experiences of basically the, the, the uniqueness of Southern poverty. And then there's books about kind of a spiritual odyssey. How do we find God in the midst of the complex movement from childhood through adulthood? But all of those things are mixed together for me. That I was a black person growing up in the South, experiencing poverty and racism. But the question that I was trying to wrestle with is where is God in the midst of all of that? Yes. And I wanted the freedom to have a book about all of those things. Because at bottom... It is a wrestling with how do you find hope in a world that tempts you towards despair. And the only way for the hope to stick out, which comes across in the book, which is God, you have to actually articulate what happens across the generations in my family and how in different ways different members of my family have wrestled with these same questions.
And so it is a story that will help people, I hope, understand something about race in America that's important and poverty in America and, and the way we function as society makes it difficult for people to flourish. But at bottom, especially for a Christian, it's to try to understand where is God at in the midst of all of these things. And I want to say that How Far to the Promised Land is an intentionally chosen title. God is our pillar of fire by night and our cloud by day. And hopefully the reader will discover that. That's tremendous. I do want to ask this, if you're on sabbatical, what is something professional you're focused on? And is there something in your personal life that you want to do during this time? Yeah, I think that I'll go professional. I want to work on a book that's not on a deadline. (laughs) From 2013, when I began my PhD all the way through, we're trying to finish the PhD, we're then trying to get it published, then we're trying to get the second book for tenure. And there's this clock that you're, you're on this sprint towards tenure. And that is an exhausting period, especially when some of the things that you write garner a little bit of attention. And then you have to People ask you to talk about it. And so I'm ready to get out of the kind of the fury of the last seven years, almost actually the last decade. I still have a lot of things I want to write and I want to say, but I want to say them and pursue them the way that we did when you first fell in love with the Bible. Yes, You read it because it was an inexhaustible book of glory and not a means of getting promoted to the next job or selling the next book. So I want to kind of return to my first love for a little bit. I'm looking forward to that. And personally, it's related to it. I want to spend some more time, it sounds cliche, with my wife and kids. We're going out of the country for the second half of my sabbatical. I was blessed to be able to be at Yarnton Manor outside of Oxford. And so me and my family have spent the semester abroad. So I'll be no traveling, no speaking, no podcast. So I'll be gone for six months and we'll be abroad. And that'll be something for our family. For anyone, the few people who might listen to this podcast and who know, during the pandemic, my wife was a Navy reservist, but she was called to active duty. And she was deployed for eight and a half months during oh, wow. the pandemic. Wow. And it was just me and the four kids during the lockdown. And that was a difficult time where we were separated as a family. And so I kind of considered the six months we were going to be in Oxford as kind of like a moment to close that chapter of our lives by spending that extended time together abroad. So I'm looking forward to that and spending time with them and going to work and coming home and playing with my kids. That's fantastic. Esau, thank you for the time. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu.